Good to see everybody this morning. We continue in our study of the book of Acts. We're ready for chapter 10 today. The book of Acts is this book in the New Testament that describes what happened right after Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross, then goes to the grave, then comes back, and then ascends. So what happens right after that? And the book of Acts explains what happens. So before he goes back, he tells a small number of followers, go make more. Go make more followers. Go tell people about me and go tell people, go teach people what I taught you, which was this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So how is it that Jesus can be the only way to God? Seems a little narrow. Would you agree? Because Jesus with his life is the only one that ever met the perfect standard of God. What is God's standard? It's perfection. He's the only one with his life to ever meet it. And with his death, he's the only one to ever satisfy God's wrath towards our sin. All of our striving to do what God wants to do and our, even, not even our striving, sometimes it's just our flat rebellion. We don't even care. Is God allowed to have wrath towards sin? Is Is it okay if he's upset about that? With his death, he satisfied all of it. He drank God's wrath. So his life and his death satisfy everything with God, and then he hands them both to us. He says, receive it. His life and his death. That's how. So that becomes the message. As people start going around saying, he's the way, the truth, and the life. So it starts to spread, and it spreads where first? Where's the whole thing take place Go ahead and be interactive today. The whole thing takes place where? Jerusalem, all right? So then Jerusalem starts to fill up with happy church people. And they're, it's good. And then last week, though, God wants it to move past that. So it's the death of Stephen. Persecution comes out. So now the good news starts to spill out all into the Roman Empire. And so that's where we pick up the story today. 70 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem and Caesarea. So this is how the gospel gets there. The gospel always has to be going from where it is to where it isn't. And this is how it got here. Ten, chapter 10, 1 through 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa. Joppa is 30 miles south of where they're at. And bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with another guy named Simon. He's a tanner. His house is by the sea. So pretty specific. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier among them, those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So, a couple of people introduced in our story, and before we go any further, we need to understand some things about them, because the truth about these two guys, there's Cornelius and Simon, who is Peter, we need to understand them, it'll be important for the rest of the story. So, Cornelius first. He's, I, he's, from, he's, part of, he's a Roman centurion from the Italian cohort. So he came over to this place from Rome. Now this, he's not a Jew. 
And so far in the story, so I'm going to spoil it for you, this guy's going to become a Christian. But he's the only one in the world at the time, he's the only one who's not a Jew that's going to become a Christian. All the Christians are Jews, so he is outside of, of the normal. So this is what's true about him. Cornelius, as a Roman centurion, grows up in a polytheistic culture. It just means that as he grew up, the norm was, or the common belief was, there are all kinds of gods all around, and they're doing all kinds of things in different places. And if you want things to go good for you here or here or here, you need to understand which God is doing what and then take, take care of business with them. So here, here's a, a family tree of gods, if you will, that would have been very familiar to Cornelius. Now, some of the names on there um, will be familiar. Poseidon, Zeus, Hermes, Apollo. It's kind of hard to take this serious because <clears throat> Disney makes movies about these and they always come out as cartoons and then it's like, this is ridiculous. But it, here's what, it wasn't ridiculous to him. Like this was, so these gods did different things and he grew up inside of that. So for instance, um, Poseidon. Poseidon was over the sea. So if you were going to sail from one place to the next, it was always a good idea to make an offering to Poseidon before you go. Do you know what they offered oftentimes? Horses. They would take horses and drown them in front of the boat before they left as an offering to Poseidon to make sure that this god of the sea was going to grant them safe passage. Who knows? When... When Cornelius sails from Rome to Caesarea, they might, have, they might have drowned horses to Poseidon. We don't know. Uh, Zeus. Zeus is another one. Zeus was sort of the god of the gods, um, but the god of the sky, so they looked to him for weather a lot. So if it's planting season and you need it to rain or not rain, or whatever the case be, what do you do? Who, who's over the weather? So you get a whole bunch of farmers together and you go to an altar to Zeus and they're all over the Roman Empire. And then you bring offerings to him, usually an animal sacrifice. This is how it went. Zeus got the hide, the bones, and the blood. You got the meat. Sometimes the, the blood was in the middle like in a cup and then you shared it one to another. He got a little and you got a little. But you would have this feast and then, then you... It's a feast in his honor, and then hopefully he's pleased, so you walk out of that feast, and it's going to, it's going to rain or not rain, depending on what you asked at the feast. This is sort of how it went. Um, Aphrodite. She's the, she's the goddess of love. If you are looking for love, she's your gal. Goddess, not a gal. So if you want a husband or a wife, or if you want more love for the husband you have, which is possible, you could need that, or more love for the wife you already have, you would go to her. Now, it was different for her because it's not like you brought her, brought her something. For her, sex itself, the act, was actually an act of worship to her. So the way in which you, you brought her into your quest for love was you would go to a temple that heard her had her name on it, and at that temple there were prostitutes, and you paid at the temple to have sex with one of those prostitutes, and that act was in somehow an act of worship to her, and then you left out of there with her on your side. 
the Greeks were creative, <laughs> to say the least, <laughs> right? Here's why I say that. Do you know what all of that was to Cornelius? Do you know what he called that? Normal. Seems crazy to us, doesn't it? Like, that's nuts. That was normal. So I just, it's like his baggage when it, like Cornelius doesn't come to God without this. He has this belief with him of all that sort of stuff. Sort of his baggage when he goes to God. Now, if you have all that going on in your life, if that's the baggage that is you, does the God of the Bible withhold himself from you anyway if that's you? Does he withhold himself from you? No. Exact opposite. What does he do to Cornelius? He goes to him. Who's bringing the gospel to Caesarea? That's what I love about this story. There's not a person that goes first. Who goes first? An angel of the Lord. God is already there and he's preparing the place and then someone's going to come in behind it with the gospel, which is probably the way the gospel always works. God goes first and then somebody comes in and builds on the foundation that he's already laid. And we can tell that God has already been working on Cornelius because he's already starting to set some of this stuff down because it says he's rejecting this idea of multiple gods and he's kind of gravitating towards the idea of one God. Now, here's the thing you can see about Cornelius that's interesting. Like he's still trying to please him. He prays continually. He's giving money. He's trying to, right? He still, does he have the whole picture when it comes to the God of the Bible? No, he doesn't have the whole picture, but he's sort of onto it. So God is there working for the gospel before anyone else gets there, which I think is a, it's just a good thing to grab a hold of when it comes to the God that we worship. If there are 99 sheep on a hill and one is lost out in the weeds, where is our God going to go? He's going to the one. Our God will leave the 99 to go to the one. That's who he is. I am so grateful for that. Because collectively, I'm telling this is what happens in the church. We get so enamored with life up on the hill with the 99, don't we? It's got to be this way and it's got to be that way. And all the while, we're so worried about life up here on the hill. Where is, where is the heart of our God? What about that one? And I was that one. I ran straight away from him as fast as I could, as hard as I could. And you know what I got in return from him? Grace. He wasn't bothered in the least by all my running and all my rebellion. And like, it didn't bother him at all. Because God never comes after you because you're special. You're not special. Sorry if that's the first time you're hearing that. But you are not. Do you know who is? He is. He is. And he just comes after you. He's coming after Cornelius, and, and he shouldn't. Don't read into that. Oh, Cornelius earned it because he prayed a lot. Don't read it that way. God had already started to work in his heart, and he starts to let down his baggage. All right. So... Cornelius comes with baggage, all right? And just to jump ahead in the message, so do all of you, and so do I. All right, so now, who's he sending? So that's Cornelius. He's sending Peter, who also has 
baggage of his own when it comes to God. Just because he's a messenger of the gospel, does he, has, does he have everything figured out? Well, of course he doesn't. So this is Peter, Simon, who's staying with the other Simon by the sea, who's about to be gone and gotten. This is him when it comes to God. He believes in, he grew up in the land that God gave Abraham. So that's where we're at. Even though Rome controls where he grew up, he's in the promised land. So he's insulated by this little Jewish community, and the polytheism of Rome has not punctured what he believes about God. He doesn't believe in the multiple gods. He believes in one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are equal, but they're not the same. I mean, he he believes in the Father who sent the Son. He's experienced the sending of the Holy Spirit. He understands that they're all God in and of themselves, but yet not the same. Creator of all things and everything is subject to that God. That God gave the moral law. The moral law is the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue, Exodus chapter 20. Do you know the Ten, do you know the ten Commandments? Let's just do this for fun. One, thou shalt have no other gods. Next one's just like it. No gods, no images. Three, God's crazy about his name. Don't take my name in vain. Four, take a Sabbath. Five, honor your parents. Last five are easy. First are kind of rough. Kill, cheat, steal, lie, covet. Last five are easy. I don't know why they're easier than the first five, but there they are. Moral law and, and all of those reflect God's character in some way. And who are those four? He says, thou shalt not or thou shalt. Who are those four? They're for us. They're like the minimum requirements. Don't kill people. It will go better for you if you don't kill people. Okay, good, we have this. In addition to that, though, there was also ceremonial law. So there was stuff that this was going to point you to the character of God. But over here, in addition to that, there was ceremonial law, which God said, okay, I want you to do the ten, but I also want you to do these things for a variety of reasons. One of the things he wanted them to do other than the ten was circumcision. There's all kinds of symbolism in that act, and we can't get into it here, but it was just something that was, on the eighth day you will circumcise your son. So it was just something that had to do with identification and a lot we could talk about there. But that's what he wanted. Also, do the ten, but there will be holy days. So I want you to remember on certain days when I broke you out of Egypt. And on that day, you're going to have this feast and this festival. I want you to remember the Day of Atonement when I symbolically covered over your sin so I couldn't see it anymore. It was temporary, but I covered over it. So the Day of Atonement, and you're going to have a feast and a festival. So do the ten, and then also have holy days of feasts and festivals. And they were very specific. Um, cleansing rituals. If you became unclean because of sin, you need to bring a certain sacrifice. If it was a little sin, bring a pigeon. If it was a big sin, bring a bigger bird, right? It just depends. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the idea. Some of you are like, wow, <laughs> a lot of birds. 
simple thing. I don't know if you know. Read Leviticus 14, or don't, but this was interesting. If you became unclean because of disease, you had to leave the camp. When you came back in, there was a certain ritual you had to go through. Like, you had to do it. It was part of the law. had to do with some oil, and the priest was involved, and he had to touch your right ear, your right thumb, and your right toe. And I am not making it up. It's actually in there. And then dietary laws. Can we get... Okay, it says dietary laws, but in addition to that, do the 10, do all that sort of stuff, and then at the bottom, there are certain foods that you can have and certain foods you can't. There are certain foods that are kosher and certain foods that are not. Those that are not would be pigs and camels and rabbits. It is in the Bible. Do we know why for everything? No, we don't know why for everything. It's just part of the deal. Now, here, Peter grew up with that. Then here's the good news. Christ comes in and takes care of the moral law because no one can do it. Can we put our cross? There it is. No one can do all ten. Christ satisfied it completely forever and paid for all the times we couldn't. So that is done. But here's the thing you need to know about every Christian in the story up to this point. Just because Jesus Christ came to the cross, died for our sin, went to the grave, overcame our last enemy death, and then resurrected, and before he, before he ascended, taught them everything, they still hung on to this stuff over here. In other words... They still weren't eating bacon. They weren't. And you can see it, it pops up all through Scripture. So they fully believed in the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus Christ, but they still hung on to these other things. So his baggage was Jesus plus no bacon. True stuff. When Paul, who's a Pharisee of the Pharisees, gets converted, and he goes on a mission. Do you know, when he, before he went on a mission, one of the things he had one of the guys do was to get circumcised before he went, because it would make things easier for the mission. Like, it's there. I mean, it's very, very there. Do they fully and fundamentally believe in the goodness and greatness of Jesus? Yes, but they're adding some things on. Are these messengers of the gospel perfect? No. They have a Jesus plus mentality. And that's not part of the gospel. So watch what happens. You got it? Watch what happens. That's who's in the story coming together. Guys are on the way down from Caesarea to Joppa, where Peter is, and this is 9 through 16. The next day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never, eating any, never eaten anything that is not kosher. Do you see what God is doing? 
God is going to save this crazy Gentile, Cornelius. And he knows nothing about the Ten Commandments and the, all, the, all the ceremony. He doesn't know it. And he's going to break it left and right. And God's sending Peter to bring him the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Peter's bringing him, Jesus plus, don't do this stuff. And so what is God doing to Peter before he even gets there? i got to get you ready because the church is going to be way bigger than you ever thought it was going to be. And you've got to drop some of this baggage. He shows him that vision three times. Eat it all. It came from me. It's fine. Three times he's getting him ready. you gotta, you got to see what he's doing. Because you cannot go to Cornelius and drop this other stuff on him because he's not going to understand it. Things are changing. I love this story. It says Peter is pondering the vision. There's a knock at the door. The Holy Spirit says, I sent these guys to you, go with them. He goes with them. They go up to Caesarea. When he gets there, there's just a room full of people, a house full of people waiting on him, just standing there. And Cornelius says this, four days ago, a guy in some very bright clothes told me to come get you at Simon's house. And so I sent these guys, and he said, you have something to tell us. So we're all here. And Peter knows right away that he's not looking at Jews. And so he says this. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. I love that. It's actually one of the primary points today. God is not partial. He brought me to you, and this is the last group of people I ever thought I'd be talking to. But here it goes. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent Israel, you want the gospel? Here it is. There is peace with God through Jesus Christ. Why is there peace? That is a great description of the gospel. Do you have today peace with God? Right where you sit. Are you at peace with God and do you know it? And how have you arrived at that peace? It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Christ, his life, and his death. And he made the peace and you receive it. He also says you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. So listen, it's not just a straight grace deal. You have to do what he says. He is judge of all. You will see him again, and you will answer for every single thing you do in this life. And anyone who believes and receives gets the forgiveness of sins. While he's still talking, the Holy Spirit falls on them just like he did on the Jews way back here in chapter 2, I think. And the Jews that were with Peter are amazed because God shows no partiality. God saved them, the crazy Gentiles, in exactly the same way that he saved the Jews, which means the Jews weren't any more special or shiny or awesome than the Gentiles to him, and they can't believe it. And Peter says, well, I think we should have a baptism service. 
Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And the very first, now you could argue this point, but the very first non-Jew becomes a Christian. And then, the next four chapters, it happens over and over and over. The next four chapters, it's Gentile salvation palooza. All over the Roman Empire. Is that good? We're Gentiles, that's good. (laughs) That's good. Praise the Lord. Because God's not partial. But here's the problem. That is so good, but there's a problem. Because here's the progression that builds. God shows no partiality which means the church is gonna have huge diversity. You're gonna have huge groups of people that are nothing alike, sort of like this room. (laughs) And when you have huge groups of people that are nothing alike, how are they gonna play together? Not well. So here's the problem that happens. It's really good, and I love that God lets us see this because this church has, it's erupted, and it's good, but now it's in need of some correction because it's going to split. There's this division that starts to rise up. Here's the problem. The two can't mix, and it's a problem on both sides. It's not a straight Gentile problem, and it's not a straight Jew problem. It's a both problem. Here was the issue over here. The Gentile was glad to receive Christ. Couldn't believe that God was that good. This is the first God who didn't demand anything. This God actually provided the sacrifice. Every other God requires me to bring one. It was mind-blowing for him. Like, yes, please, but... He also still liked Aphrodite. I love Jesus, but I like her too. And so he never really changed. Still was going to temple having sex with prostitutes to get love on his side, and he loved Jesus. And to him, that was totally fine. It was so normal. It was never wrong before, and he'd, how now is it wrong? You just said that God is gracious. Surely he can overlook my trip to the temple to Aphrodite. So it's like putting two gods up on your shelf. I like her and him. But, he, but Christian, they still went, they still wanted it not to rain, still had some of those old tendencies. And so here's how it really started to affect the, the coming together. They would go to, on Friday, the Gentile Christian would go to uh, a feast to Zeus, and they would do the sacrifice, and then there would be some leftover meat, maybe pork, with some blood still in it, let's say. Right? And then there were leftovers, so then on Saturday, they would invite their new Jewish Christian friends over 
for a community group and they would serve pork with blood in it. And the Jew sat down at the table and have you seen that commercial where their mind goes That was happening at every small group in a church that had Jews and Gentiles. What? They're like, yeah, it's good. And they had no idea what to do with it. These people, so do you get it? Do you see it? They're like, you're not, what do they start to say? You're not even Christian. You can't go have sex with prostitutes. You can't eat. You can't do that. And so, you see it? Here comes the divide. Pretty soon, this church that God has brought all together because he shows no partiality starts to divide. Here's where it blows up. In chapter 15, it says this. The, uh, the, the top part is the last verse in 14. But then I just want you to focus on the bottom, because I think I've explained the top one good enough. But the bottom one, this is what happened. But some men came down from Judea and started teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they're like, they've just had enough. Christianity looks like this. And you're going to get over here and you're going to do it this way or you are not Christian. We have to decide on what true faith is. And if we don't, we're just going to separate and go our separate ways. And so in 15, the rest of 15, they have their very first just giant church elder meeting. But I need you to understand what happens before then. The only way this is going to get reconciled is by looking to the one thing they all have in common. And what do both camps have in common? Jesus. Jesus Christ and him crucified, who is described this way. I love this description in 1 John 14. And he and the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus in the middle, full of grace, which we talk about all the time, and truth. It cuts both ways. Jesus full of grace and truth, and it's looking to him. Looking to him is the only way this is going to get fixed. This camp, they've got, they have to look at Christ and the grace of God. And this camp, they have to look at Christ and some truth. My goodness, you can't claim Christ and do nothing. The fact that he served you on the cross is supposed to soften your heart so you can see that he does have something for you to do. Your life cannot look the same as it's always looked and claim Christ. So they have this meeting. And at the meeting it says, there was no, there was no small dissension. There were huge arguments about this sort of thing. I love the transparency of God. He just lets us see a giant church fight. Do you know why he lets us see a giant church fight? Because there's a giant church fix, and the same camps exist in the church today, and we still need to know how to fix them. 
They get together and they start talking and Peter says this. They're arguing. I think we need to lay it on them. I think, I think, I think. Here's what's interesting. There are no Gentiles at the meeting. <laughs> Doesn't seem fair. Peter says, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Who's he talking about? What experience in the early days? Cornelius. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. I saw it. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Do you know what he's saying? Hey, guys, let's be honest. All this stuff we've been tracking, we can't keep it either. You know we can't keep it. Christ came for a reason. We can't keep it, and now we're saying, put it on. Look at the last line. But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. What does this camp need? Grace. All right. James gets up right after this and makes a very similar argument. He actually says, he quotes two Old Testament prophets and says this, that God said through Amos, and I can't remember the other prophet, Amos and somebody else, that he's going to make a new people after the sending of his son, and Gentiles will be called by his name. Hey, guys, God has said he was going to do this from way back when, and so we need to drop all this baggage and not hand it to the Gentile. So they agree and they write him a letter. Here's the letter. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled from blood. Anybody confused by that? Like, I thought we just let them off the hook. They're like, yes, we totally agree. Now do these four things. <laughs> yes, except there's still these four things. Still no blood. Here's the picture. This letter goes to the Gentiles, and those four things are on it. But the Gentiles receive it, because here's what the four things are. You've got to put them all together. Those four things are dealing with a single thing, and the single thing is, all those four things come from a single act, and that single act is this. You're still worshiping idols. And so they're calling the Gentile to some truth. You can't claim Christ and still go do these practices. Yeah, we're dropping the ceremonial law, but we are going to write to you about these things in particular because you need some truth. It's not, don't pick one of them out and say, okay, it's Jesus plus the blood, or it's Jesus plus nothing strangled. It's Jesus and stop worshiping other idols. And when they received the letter, they said, you're right. And so it called, what does this camp need? They need a little, do they need more grace over here? They need a little truth. Step it up. You there has to be some change. And so they move this way, 
and they move this way, and the thing that brought them together was what? In the middle. The crucified Christ, full of grace and truth. Necessary corrections is the name of my, it's the title of my sermon. Necessary corrections then and, let's be honest, necessary corrections today. I wore a t-shirt today, sort of for a reason. Because people in, the, in this room, let's be honest, some of us lean Jew, even though that we're not, and some of us lean Gentile. Here's how you know if you might lean a little Jew. You've been bothered since I walked out here. wearing a t-shirt. <laughs> it's clearly a Gentile. <laughs> right? Own it. Christianity looks a certain way. There. Now, come on, Gentiles. <laughs> Are you any different than the day you were baptized? Okay, one person says yes, but think about it. You can claim it all day long. But let's look at what we just read. You're never going to change if a bunch of legalistic people condemn you. But it doesn't mean that correction is not necessary. Where do you find that correction? Jesus Christ full of grace and truth. He has served you. Why did he serve you? He served you to save you. And grace always comes before the law. But it doesn't mean the law is not there. He served you to open up your heart. Now listen to him. He's, also, he's Savior, but in Peter's own message, he is Lord of all and judge of all. Let's go. Let's go. You can't stop claiming Christ and going to Aphrodite. Full of sexual immorality. Doing all the stuff you always used to do. There, ha there has to be a new pattern. Not because of some legalistic Christian berating you over his Jesus plus doctrine. Because of Christ. All right, Jews and Gentiles, right? So that's the deal, and it still exists in this room today. God is not partial. That means no matter where you go, you will always be mixed together with people who are vastly different from you. And the only thing that's ever going to bring us together is the thing we all hold in common, and that is Christ and him crucified. So that's the meal we share today to end this service, which I think is a really good way to do it. The communion meal is a way for this vast group of people. We're all so different. We all have so much baggage we bring to this deal. And it's a way for us to agree and remember, Jew and Gentile alike, and I'm just throwing those terms around, but you understand it, 
Hey, this is what we have in common. And this is, this is what we have in common. And this is what will correct us. This is what will correct us. So the meal is this. The meal is a reminder. I'll just read. 1 Corinthians 11. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So you take the bread, and the bread is the body of Christ on the cross, and it symbolizes, when you take it, what you're saying is, All of my sin... God graciously placed upon him. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. So it's the removal by the grace of God. God chose to put it on him. I want that bread. Take as big a piece as you want. And let me just throw this in there. Because we're all so different, this is actually great. Some people don't like when people put their hand on the loaf and rip it off. So they don't take it. True story. So we have other bread that won't be touched by anybody. And collectively inside, a few people are going, and you know what? We love you. You're a little weird, but that's okay. We love you. Not because you're right. Anyway. The bread. All right? So you claim the bread. Then the cup, in the same way he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of my new covenant, of the new covenant, of the new deal between God. What is the new deal between God? I will bear your sin, and I will drink his wrath, and I will wash your sins away. This is the cup, and you take it. There will be no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, and the cup washes it away. The body removes it. It was placed over there. The cup washes it away. When you drink that, it is finished. There's peace between God and I. Not because you did this act, because it's already been done, and you do it to remember it. Jew and Gentile alike. Now, it says... For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So by doing it, you're proclaiming the death of Christ, what is done for you. Now, you can't proclaim it unless you've received it. So this is something for believers. So if you haven't received it yet, that's okay. It's a great thing to watch. When you watch it, I think it's maybe one of the most powerful things to watch because it's like... It's like God's, you, it's like the visible expression of God's grace. Because you're going to see a whole bunch of sinners come up here and they're going to claim Christ. And it's good for you to see it because you're no different than them. All they've done is they said, I know that I need this. And I think watching the meal can actually work in your heart. I need that too. I want peace with God. If you've not received it, don't come and take it. But if you have, you do. The process is. You figure out in your seat the baggage that you bring to this whole deal. And then you sort out that baggage with him where you're at. And you know if the baggage you bring is a little more judgmental Jew, or you know if the baggage you bring is a little more crazy Gentile. But either way, you've got things to sort out with him. And when you sort them out, you come and remember.
So we'll pray and then we'll get to it. Lord, thanks for the word. Uh, thanks for the truth. Thanks for the gospel. Thanks for Jesus. Thanks for no partiality. Uh, but help us to focus on Christ because it's the only way we all get along. It's the only thing we have in common. And I do pray that when we focus on him, that it does correct us. Every single one of us in this room needs corrected. And, and you do the correcting. And you always do it perfectly. So just pray that that happens in our midst as we take communion, as we remember. And I ask it in the good and great name of Jesus. And everybody said, after you've sorted out the baggage, come and remember.